Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 76, the book of Matthew, chapter 23, continued. Well, our study of Matthew 23 continues today, but bear with me before we reopen its inspired pages. Early in the book of Genesis, we learned of a fundamental governing, governing dynamic of God. He divides, elects, and separates. He divides, he elects, he separates. One of the most obvious examples of this dynamic was when he called Abraham to become the inaugural leader of a new group of people set apart for a divine purpose, to be a kingdom of priests for God. Being elected, however, wasn't sufficient. This newly created division meant that Abraham had to separate from his past and from his present. He had to leave his father and his siblings and even his homeland. We shouldn't minimize the severe pain this would have caused all involved. Now later, when Abraham's wives and concubines bore him children, there was yet another uncomfortable and painful division, election, and separation between his sons Isaac and Ishmael. And some years later, it happened again among his grandchildren, Jacob and Esau. Now, the believer's life journey with the Lord necessarily exposes us to this same and ongoing challenge and pain of division, election, separation. Yet, if there is a common theme within the worldwide church community, it's unity. Unity. Now, unfortunately, the type of unity that is usually contemplated is entirely human in its nature, despite the spiritual overtones used to try to achieve it. If ever there was a strong biblical example of the wrong type of unity, the type God does not want, the type that is against his nature, against his governing dynamic, it must be the story of the Tower of Babel. Human unity was so desired and accomplished that God devised a simple way to divide and separate Nimrod's subjects. He gave them new multiple languages so that communication among Babel's citizens became impossible. So people were forced to scatter. They divided themselves up into groups based on speaking one of the several new languages God imposed upon Babel. Now, I've commented numerous times that culture and language are organically coupled together. Language is human speech that expresses cultural norms and historical customs, and it is language that provides the necessary unity and cohesion for a society of people to best operate and thrive. People, of course, can learn a second language. 
But unless they are also immersed into the native culture that is the mother of that language, talking can occur, but communicating meaning and nuance likely will not. The heavenly kind of unity that God does want for us is when we connect ourselves to Him through Christ. And then He becomes like the hub of a wheel through which this kind of unity occurs. The irony is that this kind of unity only happens when people are divided, elected, and separated away from the community of the world. It's when those who trust in God's Son, Yeshua, become a new and separate order apart from all others, much like for Abraham. This is how those who worship God become Abraham's seed, seed of Abraham. This event or process is cooperative. It's a cooperative venture between us and God, His elect. God does the dividing and the electing, but it falls upon us as His worshipers to do the separating. Separating is the painful but mandatory part that is at once the hardest to do. But it's also how the community of Christ on earth is formed. John 17, 11, Now I am no longer in the world. They are in the world, but I am coming to you. Holy Father, guard them by the power of your name, which you have given to me, so that they may be one, just as we are one. <clears throat> Revelation 18, 4, Then I heard another voice out of heaven say, My people, come out of her so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not be infected by her plagues. Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <clears throat> I could quote you a couple dozen more teachings in the New Testament alone about God's type of unity, about dividing, electing, separating. But the point is that separating is not an option if we're going to follow Yeshua and be part of a godly society on earth. And much of it depends upon us bending our will to the Lord's and thus taking those required steps. This doesn't mean becoming isolated or cultish. We are to separate ourselves spiritually from this world, behaviorally from this world, and to fellowship with the like-minded. Yet until we die, we will always be physically connected to this world. And it's our duty to take the gospel that has saved us and changed us to the people of the world who don't know God don't know of his love for them. This is a tall task and a difficult at times, I'll tell you, to balance and reconcile 
we can stay so attached to this world while still claiming to have trust in Christ that we become what some call carnal Christians. We also can be so cut off from this world that we are so heavenly minded we provide no earthly good. Division, election, separation. This is the undertone of all that Jesus has been instructing. And he's been demonstrating it in his own life throughout his earthly ministry. And it's especially front and center in Matthew chapter 23. Let's reread a portion of it. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. We're going to start reading in verse 8. But you are not to let yourselves be called rabbi because you have one rabbi and you are all each other's brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father because you have one father and he's in heaven. Nor are you to let yourselves be called leaders because you have one leader and he is the Messiah. The greatest among you must be your servant. For whoever promotes himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be promoted. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and paroshim, you Pharisees. For you are shutting the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, neither entering yourselves nor allowing those who wish to enter to do so. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You go about over land and sea to make one proselyte, and when you succeed, you make him twice as fit for gay and home as you are. Woe to you, you blind guides. You say, if someone swears by the temple, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound. Now you blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple which makes the gold holy? And you say, if someone swears by the altar, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the offering on the altar, he's bound. Blind men, which is more important, the sacrifice or the altar which makes the sacrifice holy? So someone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. Someone who swears by the temple swears by it and the one who lives in it. And someone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and the one who sits on it. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. Oh, you pay your tithes of mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the weightier matters of the Torah. Justice, mercy, trust. These are the things you should have attended to without neglecting the others. Blind guide straining out a gnat, meanwhile swallowing a camel. Woe to hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may be clean too. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You are like whitewashed tombs. Look fine on the outside, but inside full of dead people's bones, all kinds of rottenness. And likewise, you appear to people from the outside to be good and honest. 
but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and far from Torah. Woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the Zadokim, the holy men. And you say, had we lived when our fathers did, we would never have taken part in killing the prophets. In this you testify against yourselves that you are worthy descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Now go ahead and finish what your father started. <clears throat> you snakes, sons of snakes, how can you escape being condemned to Gehinnom? Therefore I am sending you prophets and sages and Torah teachers. Some of them you'll kill. Indeed, you will have them executed on stakes as criminals. Some you'll flog in your synagogues, pursue from town to town. So on you will fall the guilt for all the innocent blood that has ever been shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Havel, Abel, to the blood of Zechariah ben Berkiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Yes, I tell you that all this will fall on this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets. You stone those who are sent to you. How often I wanted to gather your children, just as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings. But you refused. Look, God is abandoning your house to you, leaving it desolate. For I tell you, from now on, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Adonai. <clears throat> now, we ended our last lesson by briefly going over a short list of titles that Yeshua says ought not to be used within the Hebrew faith, rabbi, father, and leader. Now, the term rabbi didn't yet quite mean what it means today. But within a few decades after Yeshua's earthly ministry came to its predestined close, it would begin to transform from indicating a greatly admired teacher of God's word to meaning great one. In the sense of a person who holds a special office in the hierarchy of the religion of Judaism. The term father was actually a term already in use of the various Semitic religious sects, and so also within the sphere of authority and reach of the synagogues. This was to indicate a highly positioned elder. Leader, that's a little harder to decipher, except it seems to mean anyone who has exalted themselves above others within the synagogue religious structure. Now, obviously, Christ's idea was not to abolish these words from the Hebrew language, <clears throat> but rather it was dealing with the worldly norm of setting some men upon pedestals, such that it led to them glorifying themselves and then the people acquiescing to their unquestioned leadership. This leads us right back now to the purpose for my opening words of today's lesson. Essentially, Jesus was using the Pharisees and the scribes of the synagogue system as examples of the wrong way to do things within the Hebrew faith of God as he originally intended it to operate. 
Jesus thoroughly denounces them as he continues to set the boundaries, the priorities, the entrance requirements, even the structure of the new believer's community that he's establishing. This new community is being formed out of the existing Jewish community, and its members are those who trust in Yeshua of Nazareth as God's son. Each member is neither higher nor lower in status than another. Rather, whether a leader or a follower in the Jesus community, everyone is to see themselves as equals, as brothers. So in verse 11, Jesus sums it up by saying that the greatest among them, the necessary leadership, are not to see themselves as having attained a higher status than the rest, but rather they are to see their purpose and function as servants for the others. This is the way the kingdom of heaven is to operate. It's a complete reversal from the way the world operates. It's also a reversal from the way the Jewish religious system had come to operate in Christ's era. And in too many cases, it is the way that the Christian church of the 21st century operates, and it has since the second century. Too often people serve the pastor or the rabbi or the priest, not the other way around as it ought to be. Too often the pastor or the rabbi, or the priest, they're seen as elevated above the others, deserving of special privilege and honor. You know, I know of many church and synagogue leaders who believe they are elevated, thus rightfully ought to be catered to. But I also know of others who are wonderful servants in the mold that God intends, and they daily sacrifice their personal needs for the congregants. No doubt this too was the case among the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus was talking to the ones that needed to be taken down a notch. Not to all of them. Even Flavius Josephus speaks about how there were many Pharisees that were fine and humble men, loved by the people for their kindness and for their mercy. But there was a far deeper consequence to what Yeshua was speaking and demonstrating. He was demanding that his followers were to become a separate sect, the Messianic sect, for lacking, lack of better words, which would operate both within and outside of the present state of the Hebrew faith that had been morphing into what Bible scholars, Jewish and Christian, loosely call early Judaism. That is, the Hebrew biblical faith had evolved into a, a human-devised system of behaviors as defined by the synagogue leaders and far from the true meaning and sense of the God-given law of Moses. Now, this helps us to gain more comprehension of a core principle that Jesus taught 
in his Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a ute or a stroke will pass from the Torah, not till everything that must happen has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven because I tell you that unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. It's that last line I want you to hear. In this passage, I've quoted to you so many times, Yeshua was speaking about the same type of synagogue leaders that he's now chastising so severely in Matthew chapter 23. The term righteousness that he used in characterizing the scribes, the Torah teachers, and the Pharisees was almost meant sarcastically. Or perhaps better, Jesus was referring to the fake righteousness that the scribes and Pharisees assigned to themselves that was far off the mark of biblical righteousness. And so it amounted to little to no righteousness whatsoever in the Father's kingdom. Rather, Jesus describes true biblical righteousness as what? What did he just say in those verses we've heard so many times? It's as obeying the commandments of the Torah and the prophets. Just said it. That's how we show true righteousness and teaching these commandments to others. The scribes and the Pharisees are condemned by Yeshua because they were not teaching God's commandments. Rather, they were teaching their own man-made doctrines. They were teaching a system of behaviors that brought with him heavy burdens, not much righteousness. Now, with all this in mind, then, beginning at verse 13, Yeshua unleashes a torrent of seven woes upon these synagogue leaders who are misleading their people. Interestingly, some Bible versions, perhaps the very one you're reading from, had an Eighth woe. It is this that I'm about to read to you for those who don't have it in your Bible. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Okay, in reality, this verse is a much later Christian gloss that was added to Matthew's gospel. It never existed in the earliest Greek manuscripts that we have. So the addition must have occurred uh, around the fifth century or later. Probably, as we've already seen happen in earlier chapters, a Christian Bible editor saw those same words that appear in Mark chapter 12. And he thought the gospels would harmonize best if those same words were also included in Matthew. Therefore, we're not going to deal with that verse and instead only look at the seven woes that Matthew records. Now, I wonder 
if by now, after we've worked our way through 22 chapters in Matthew, some of you who are listening or watching would still insist that Jesus can be described only as love. That is, love's the only attribute of Christ, or at least the only one worth mentioning. Yet if Jesus really can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and he means it, then the same attributes of the Old Testament God that wholesale destroys entire evil cities and their citizens, who judges, judged Canaan and turned it over to the refugee Israelites, who killed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in a single day. That must live within Yeshua too. And indeed, that is more or less what we find in God's Word. If we'll just lay down our man-made doctrines that merely function, I don't know, as a cover-up. Although certainly in his first advent, Jesus states he did not come to condemn. On the other hand, if he didn't come to condemn, it's difficult to fit even a thin sheet of paper between that and when we find him using such strong language to set the synagogue and the temple leadership back on their heels and here during a non-stop diatribe against them since entering Jerusalem. I mean, he now harshly judges the synagogue leadership that stands before him by pronouncing seven woes upon them. What's a woe? Anybody here ride horses? It's not that. For the sake of illustration, I think it's not too big of a reach to equate the woes of Jesus with the plagues of Moses. Since Jesus is the prophet like me that Moses promised would come, and since throughout his gospel, Matthew has made an obvious implied comparison between Yeshua and Moshe. Then the, for the sake of trying to just best describe what a, a woe meant to him, we could probably replace woe with plague. That is, in verse 13 where it begins, but woe to you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees, it could just as easily say a plague upon you hypocritical Torah teachers and Pharisees. Now, I'm not saying that the meanings of these two words are precisely the same. I'm saying that they're close enough in purpose and in effect that it might help Christians in the 21st century to get the sense that Jesus is talking to these scribes as though they were foreign enemies. So how deeply offensive it must have been to them. Now, since I'm occasionally called out by mainstream church leaders and Christian laymen for saying some uncomfortable things, such as I just said, that Jesus is not only love, I'd like to quote someone of note who at least sees him more or less similarly. Ben Witherington III, in his commentary on Matthew, says this, 
most people reading this commentary would like to have had a user-friendly Jesus, an approachable Jesus, a Jesus who is threatening and who warns of coming judgment in hell does not produce warm feelings. Those of us who love Jesus need to do our best to avoid the tendency to whittle down or lop off the hard edges of his teaching. If there are parts of his teaching that makes us uncomfortable, perhaps we should allow that to tell us something about where we are, what we believe, rather than saying Jesus could never have said something like that. The human tendency to minimize what we find disturbing or painful or hard, hard to swallow needs not to be given free reign when it comes to Jesus' teachings. Jesus must be allowed to have his say whether we're happy with his words or not. I don't know how that makes you feel. If it makes you feel any better, but it does me. The first woe, woe sort of sums up the why and the what for of the six following woes upon these religious leaders whom Yeshua finds as despicable and dangerous. He calls them hypocrites. Now, we shouldn't focus on that word because in his day and for many centuries before and after, one Jew calling another Jew a hypocrite, especially when arguing religious issues, that was just common banter. It's not too far from English-speaking people calling somebody a jerk or a phony. I mean, the problem is that while we common people can do that to one another with a little more risk than somebody maybe being a little bit put off, it's not without its consequences when it's said to people who consider themselves as having a privileged status and having power over you. And we must always factor in the reality that to the minds of these revered scribes and Pharisees of privileged status and rank, Yeshua was essentially an intruder, an uneducated, troublemaking, itinerant, Galilean, holy man. You talk about a bunch of strikes against you. And he was saying these condemning things to them and making them look bad in front of crowds of people. How dare he? Yeshua says that not only will these esteemed scribes and Pharisees not be welcomed into the kingdom of heaven, but also their error-filled teaching, their arrogant behavior, and their bad example to others is leading those who believe that their religious leader's instruction is God-ordained and who long to be able to someday enter into God's kingdom by following their instructions. Instead, they're being led in the same abyss that these leaders are going to eventually fall into. Following up on those hard-hitting comments by Witherington, I'll once again risk the ire of my fellow Christians by saying that as those who love our Savior, 
we're just much too close within the church today to epitomizing the very people Yeshua was speaking to and speaking about. Much too close. And I will tell you, every time I say these sorts of things, my email inbox, inbox overfloweth with notes that say, stop church bashing. Or, well, my church isn't like that. You know, as with Yeshua, just as he wasn't bashing the Hebrew, or the Hebrew faith, but he was bashing the Jewish leadership for the wrong teaching, it's my intent not to church bash, but rather to shake up things among these church leaders to rethink these many doctrines that they teach, which often does not say something quite different than what the Word of God says. You know, it's the job of Bible teachers and pastors and Messianic rabbis to teach the biblical truth, not to teach denominational doctrines. It's our job to lead people into the kingdom on God's terms. Not on ours, or those stated terms of denominational councils. It is our job to be willing to bear the anger and the rejection of others, even of our fellow brethren. Because what we teach and do isn't always going to meet their expectations, or frankly, it's not always going to make your lives more comfortable. On the other hand, it's not our job to be people-pleasers. We're supposed to be God-pleasers. Yeshua was willing to displease the Jewish faith leadership and most of his fellow Jews in order to reform the Jewish faith back into what God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai. This bold teaching of truth, this was the catalyst that led him to the cross. Well, the next woe that Christ hurls at the scribes and the Pharisees is in verse 15. Now remember, some Bibles have a verse 14, some don't. And it's about their great efforts to proselytize. Now there is a reasonable disagreement among good Bible scholars over whether Jesus is referring to Jews proselytizing Gentiles or the Pharisees attempting to sway diaspora Jews to their Pharisaical traditions and doctrines. Other than this rather ambiguous statement from Yeshua, there is no historical evidence that prior to the destruction of the temple and the, the birth of rabbinic Judaism, the Jews ever tried, in the least, to convert Gentiles to the Jewish faith. We do read in Josephus' Josephus's Jewish Wars of many Gentiles being attracted to Judaism. He never accused the rabbis of proselytizing Gentiles, although certainly some small level of outreach must have occurred. Even so, he was writing specifically about a time well after 70 AD. That's 40 or more years after the death of Christ, a few years after Paul died. Therefore, my opinion is that the viewpoint among some Bible scholars 
that the Jewish missionary activity spoken about here is directed towards pagan Gentiles is born out of the church wanting to connect this passage to the dreaded Judaizing that we read about in some of Paul's epistles, a term that, that Christians generally regard as holy, negative, ungodly, and an arch enemy of the church. However, that view seems so entirely out of place from what we know historically and from what we actually read in the Bible. Rather, it seems to me that considering the Jewish culture and customs and faith of the times, and that when we hear of Peter and other Jewish believers going to Gentiles, it is that they risk being shunned or worse by their Jewish friends and religious leaders. Well, that what must be happening, what must be happening is that the Pharisees went about trying to sway some of the millions of Jews out in the diaspora to adopt their particular doctrines and traditions that were far more onerous and, and strict than what they had been practicing in their synagogues in Europe and Asia and North Africa. In other words, the Pharisees traveling far and wide was a competition. It was a competition to acquire adherence to their own Jewish sect from within the many far-flung colonies of Jewish culture, and it never involved Gentiles. There's no evidence of it at all. Even Christ instructed his disciples to go only to the Jewish people with the good news. In fact, Yeshua railing against the scribes and Pharisees for teaching their misguided traditions to other Jews has been the central focus for a few chapters now in Matthew. So to interpret this passage as indicating Pharisees proselytizing Gentiles, that just doesn't fit any context that we've come across. So what is being spoken of here is this passionate determination of the sect of the Pharisees that spares no time or expense or travel danger to convert marginal Jews to the strict halakha, the doctrines of the Pharisees. The least we can say is that while the Pharisee leadership might not have practiced what they preached, they seemed to believe most of what they taught. In Christ's mind, this great passion made them all the more threatening to the spiritual welfare of the Jews who expected to be part of the kingdom of heaven nearly exclusively by means of their Jewish birth. And says Jesus, whenever these Jewish missionaries convert another Jew to their halakha, it makes the convert fit only for Gehenom, or in English, Gehenna. No, this was not speaking about the Christian hell. Clearly, this was some kind of ancient Hebrew religious expression that meant those Jews excluded from God's kingdom, Jews that were so sinful, like prostitutes and tax collectors, that they were not allowed to be part of it. However, since the Jewish faith did not contemplate the idea of Gentiles ever being part of God's kingdom, 
than being cast into Gehinom, generally speaking, was not meant as even a possibility for Gentiles. Well, the third woe begins in verse 16. Now, I've so far mentioned that the issue with synagogue authorities, the scribes and the Pharisees, is their halakha, their traditions, that rules the sect and therefore becomes the lifestyle of the common Jews, almost all of which belong to one synagogue or another. So after the first two woes being rather general in nature, this third one specifically addresses certain traditions that Jesus finds as absurd on their face. I want to be clear, Yeshua was not being hypothetical. He's also not exaggerating. These are actual Jewish laws, at least of some of the Pharisees. Takes up a few verses. I want us to reread the third woe so that you can hear what was actually going on. Turn to uh, chapter 23, verse 16. I'm just going to read a few verses. We'll go through 22. It's almost comical. Woe to you, Belen guide. You say if someone swears by the temple, well, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the gold in the temple, he's bound. You blind fools, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold holy? And you say if someone swears by the altar, he's not bound by his oath. But if he swears by the offering that's on the altar, he's bound. Blind men, which is more important, the sacrifice, the altar, which makes the sacrifice holy. So someone who swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and someone who swears by the temple swears by it and everything on it, and someone who swears, swears by it and the one who lives in it, and someone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and one who sits on it. Look, What connects these various examples, I was trying to rush through them, that Christ gives is temple ritual. That's the connecting fiber, temple ritual. And since this, is, this scolding by Jesus is actually taking place at the temple, and it's during the Passover festival in Jerusalem, this object lesson about Halakha as concerns temple ritual, that makes all the sense in the world. To be clear, however, this ritual, this is ritual that's based upon Pharisee traditions, not so much as rules imposed by the Sadducees, although the, the two religious factions could well have agreed upon them. So this begins by dealing with the important matter of oaths. Oaths. See, oaths were important in Jewish society because most business transactions were settled orally and were not written down. But because people in the regular conversation had star also started using oaths to amplify their yes and their no. These business transactions among Jews were seen as guaranteed by God if an oath was pronounced by both parties, so an oath was part of nearly every business matter. Thus, the religious authorities determined what constituted 
a valid and binding oath. And what didn't? And naturally, since all oaths among Jews necessarily invoke the God of Israel, not just any old God, that indeed it was a religious matter. Now the Pharisees then had all sorts of built-in loopholes by which someone could declare an oath, but surprise, it's not binding. And Yeshua's position was, all oaths are binding. Because all oaths invoke the God of Israel in one way or another. He calls those who make and enforce these rules blind guides. Well, there's no question to exactly whom he's referring, because in chapter 15 he used the same epithet for the Pharisee leaders. Matthew 15, 14, let them be. They're blind guides. When a blind man guides another blind man, both will fall in a pit. In this point and counterpoint session about different oaths being used, notice how the Pharisees sought to avoid using God's name. That is, for a couple of different reasons, they sought to avoid directly invoking God. First, it was because beginning late in the 4th century BC, a superstition had broken out against saying God's formal name, Yudhevave, Yehove. We see Jehovah in English. It soon expanded to not saying the word God out loud. Then pretty soon to not even writing it. This taboo remains intact to this very day in the 21st century within Judaism. Now, the second reason to avoid directly invoking God is because it can make the oath more malleable. So, a business partner can find a way out. Or, on the other hand, maybe a way to keep it enforced. Now, no doubt, the particular oath formulas Yeshua spoke about were real and they were commonly used. This was not a joke, even though it might sound pretty ludicrous to us when we just read it. So, if a shrewd Jew swore an oath using the temple as the guarantor, then he could back out. But if he swore an oath on the gold used inside the temple, then he couldn't. You blind fools, since Christ. Not exactly a nice thing to say, was it? He asked, which is more important? That is, which has more gravitas? The temple or the gold inside of it? Then Yeshua teaches something that the Pharisees would have known if they had been Torah scholars instead of Halakha scholars. He says, it is the holy temple that makes the gold holy. See, this is the principle that holiness can be spread through contact. That is, a common object like gold coming into contact with a holy object like the temple transfers holiness to the common object, making it holy as well. 
The Torah explains that holiness must not be accidentally spread or maliciously misappropriated by human device. See, we should remember from the book of Numbers the terrible outcome for the Levite Korah who rebelled against Moses and argued against God's command that only a certain clan of Levites, wasn't Korah's clan, would be allowed to come near to God's holiness and serve in the tabernacle. Great honor. Moses put Korah's assertion to the test. Korah and 250 other men approached the wilderness tabernacle with their incense burners. And as Moses said that God would then reveal just who had the authority to be near holiness. And as the men approached the tabernacle, God struck them all down with fire from heaven, even destroying their fire pans, their incense burners. Why? Well, the men in consequence of their rebellion. The fire pans, because they had contracted holiness from being so close to the holy tabernacle. God would not allow objects that maliciously and wrongly misappropriated holiness to continue to exist. See, God and God alone controls who and what can be holy. Now, using this same ancient Torah principle, Yeshua says that another common dodge used by shrewd Pharisees is to swear by the altar. Because the Pharisees believe this can allow him to renounce his oath. But if he swears by the offering, the sacrifice that's placed on the altar, then he can't back out. Yeshua says that their logic for this tradition, again, is hugely faulty because an offering of itself is not holy. It's merely common. It's only the holiness of the temple altar that gets transferred to the offering, the sacrifice, that makes the offering holy once it's set upon the altar. Exodus 29, 37. Seven days you will make atonement on the altar and consecrate it. Thus the altar will be especially holy, and whatever touches the altar will become holy. In verse 22, we find it had become another tradition that one could swear by heaven, and it too was not binding on the oath maker. See, there's a nuance here that's not visible to us unless we understand it in first century Jewish cultural terms. See, using the word heaven in that era was simply a way to refer to God without breaking the taboo against saying the word God or saying His name. This is why we see the Gospel writer Matthew, the righteous Jewish believer, using the term kingdom of heaven so often, instead of kingdom of God, as the other gospel accounts do. Heaven and God were essentially synonymous terms, but saying heaven was a religiously and culturally allowable loophole 
while saying God was not. This rule was halakha, it was Jewish tradition. It was not scripturally correct. However, since Christ, since, God, since heaven is God's throne and it represents the one sitting on it, then saying heaven is just as binding as if God himself were invoked. So the terms heaven and God meant essentially the same thing and one couldn't wiggle out of it just because some Pharisees with religious authority said so. This is not because the two terms, heaven and God, technically mean the same thing. They obviously do not. But because the leaders of Judaism thought they could be clever and they could just kind of refer to God by saying heaven, then they are obeying Jewish law. I want you to please follow along with me on this. I think it's fascinating. It's very revealing that the only time in the book of Matthew that we find the phrase, the kingdom of God, is when Matthew is quoting Yeshua. Only five times in Matthew do we find the phrase, kingdom of God, but we find him using kingdom of heaven more than 40 times. In Mark, guess what? We never find the phrase kingdom of heaven. It's not in Mark at all. It's also only the kingdom of God, and it's exactly the same way in the Gospel of Luke. Why this stark difference? Simple. Mark and Luke were Gentiles. They did not observe the Jewish taboo of not saying God. And they were also not writing their Gospels for use by the Jewish community, but rather by the Gentile community. So saying God wouldn't have brought them a swift negative reaction. Equally fascinating, though, is this. Christ is quoted, and all the Gospel accounts is sometimes saying, Kingdom of God. This means that Yeshua did not adhere to the traditional Jewish taboo of refraining from using the word God. Jesus saying God out loud would have surprised any Jew and would have deeply upset the Pharisees. Okay, next up is the fourth row, woe, and we'll get into that next time.